But Paceline is supported by LAL Cycling. The coast is calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. And the Paceline is brought to you by Health IQ. You ride your bike, you stay in shape, you deserve lower life insurance rates. Head over to their website, healthiq.com forward slash Paceline, and find out how much your riding can save you on premiums. Now on to the show. On this edition of the Pace Line, we get a dirty Kenza primer. We envision a roller coaster uh, constantly down and up and down and up. And at the, at the bottom, at the valley of all these, oftentimes uh, there will have been water running across the road. And we hear from a nutrition company who gets it down to one ingredient. I mean, the one thing that we see a lot of, uh, whether it's in, in the endurance category or, you know, really anybody that's that's extending a lot of energy, is when they utilize something that has fructose in it, they get GI issues. And you just don't get that with glucose. Glucose burns super clean. It's processed super efficiently. And so you just don't get that gut issue. Line, the podcast on two wheels. Hello, everyone. Thanks for finding our show. Our normal three-man working group, the Pace Line as it's called, has been whittled down to one. And you're listening to them. I'm Michael Hodden, your host. Well, your occasional part-time, semi, when he feels like it, when he's up for it, host. I know I've not been great, really consistent at this job, but I am here nonetheless, which is a lot more than I can say uh, than the other the other two-thirds of, of this podcast. Uh, if you were listening to, to last show, the last pace line, you probably heard Patrick announce something uh, that he was traveling. He would be on the road. Uh, and when we say on the road, this is, this is a big trip. Uh, Patrick, if you've been following him on social media, you've probably seen then pictures of him. Eating fine foods, hanging out in a somewhat mysterious land, I suppose. Yes, riding his bike. And this is a working trip, although we say that with tongue buried in cheek. It is a working trip for Patrick. He is on assignment for uh, Bicycling Magazine. This is a travel piece he's working on um, about riding in an area of Japan he's been very interested in. So... Uh, I think the article, uh, as Patrick said, would be coming out later this year. Magazines work way ahead of themselves. The article that he's researching right now and reporting on it right now probably won't make print until late this year or early next year. So uh, that's the way magazines work. In the podcasting world and the broadcast world where I come from, uh, three days is is eternity. Uh, magazines and print, they work, and books, geez, they work Months and months. In fact, I've done some writing recently for Triathlete Magazine. I've almost gone into a state of shock when they give me an assignment. They say, oh, yeah, could you have that done for us uh, 45 days from now? I said, 45 days? I can have done in 45 minutes from now for, based on based on my experience. So Patrick, indeed, working on a travel piece about riding and hanging out and whatever else in, in Japan. And looks like so far he's having an excellent trip 
So safe travels, Patrick, and uh, we'll see you back on the pace line in an episode or two, whenever you feel like it. Just just come on back. Now, the, the other part of this podcast, I don't have as good of an excuse for. In fact, I have no excuse for his absence. Eldon Fatty Nelson, where are you, buddy? Where, where are you? I, I just don't know. I hope there's a... I hope there is a tall tale. I hope there is a great epic mountain bike thing you had to do. You could not miss. Um, you got your bike all put together. You you put the new tubeless tires on and you just had to be away for something. I hope it's something like that. I really do. So we're missing both Patrick and Fatty this week, which leaves you listening to me. For a very long time. Actually, it's not going to be all me. It's gonna, There's going to be some Patrick here. He did leave us an interview. Uh, and I'm looking forward to this one. This will be with the organizers of the Dirty Kanza. Uh, Patrick's got a two-part interview. In fact, we're going to air a part one of that interview about what it takes to put on a 200-miler in the middle of Kansas. Really looking forward to that. So we will hear from Patrick. But otherwise, you're going to have to listen to me. And you're going to have to listen to a lot of... Michael Houghton today. I hope you don't mind that. Um, But I got a few things here to share with you. And one of them I want to talk about is of the Tour Flanders. Actually, the Tour Flanders is my favorite race on the Pro Tour calendar. I really dig how the people show up. It is the biggest sporting event in Belgium, as far as I think any of us can tell. Um, They line the streets. They get an estimated million people out there. Uh, Sometimes the weather can be just awful. They they repeat some of the same climbs year in and year out. So you get a sense of identity, even though we're, you know, clear uh, two continents apart or continent apart from them. You get a, a sense of identity and feel for the race. It's a magical place. Um, it takes a special athlete to win that race and, and, and the proper teamwork too, and, and some luck as well. It's not about the rattle fest that Roubaix could be. I actually heard Lance Armstrong say recently that he, he believed his favorite of the of the spring classics was the Tour of Flanders, and because it had the climbs and the bergs, and you did not leave the race wasn't decided on. And not that Roubaix always is, but it can be decided on a lot more luck, on mechanical failure, or just uh, hitting a cobble at the wrong angle can can ruin your race and lose your race for you. Flanders test the man a little bit more. Yes, there are bumps. <laughs> and climbing up the Koppenberg um, on a bumpy surface at 20% certainly cannot be any fun. But uh, the race is always uh, very exciting. And, and this year this year was no different. Uh, Philippe Gilbert was the men's winner. And I don't think going into the race, in fact, for, for some time, I don't think anybody's really talked about Gilbert, Philippe Gilbert, as a Flanders Contender. Yes, he's great in the Ardennes Classics. I mean, he excels at a race like Liège or at a race like Amstel Gold, and he has a, a great record in those races, but he's never been known as somebody for Flanders or Roubaix. So going into this thing, certainly he was not the talk of the Peloton. His name would probably be brought up. He's on Quick Step, so you're going to get mentioned. You're on Quick Step that Quick Step is supposed to win this race, and indeed they won. They just didn't win the, with the man they they were probably hoping to, and that was Tom Boone, who was their their captain. 
Boonin is is retiring at the end of uh, the spring. In fact, once his spring campaign is over, he's out. And certainly, he had he had his eyes on Flanders, uh, being Belgian, being his last uh, being his last entry into that race. I'm sure he wanted to win it, but it was his teammate that won. And man, people are starting to call this one of the one of the great Flanders wins ever because of the style in which Joubert attacked the, ra- the race. He went he went. He launched his attack with 55 kilometers to go, 55K to go, the man takes off. And that's that's crazy in most people's mind. And and the, the bunch just, not the bunch, but the, the leading group just let him go for obvious reasons. I mean, you want to solo away for 55K? Go ahead. Stick your nose out there and, and give it a go. And what I thought was going on initially was, was Jobert, and this could have been the case, Jobert was just setting up. Tom Boonen uh, figured that Gilbert would go and maybe he would hope he would draw some other contenders out and then Boonen could follow those wheels and then you'd have a two against hopefully um, some singles in there. Um, they could isolate some guys and then make their quick step move and and Boonen could go on to victory. But that never worked out. First of all, Gilbert was riding like a madman and the, the chase was on and it looked, it looked for like a long time he would be caught but Boonin, um, he didn't come apart, but his bicycle did. He had a mechanical problem and things just didn't go right on the bike exchange. And he, he never got back into the chase. He ended up finishing in the second or third group. But his day was over thanks to some mechanical issues. Sepp Van Mark, another strong rider, great man for the classics. He stuck his front wheel in one of those famous Flanders cracks. Uh, the concrete there can be... Look, uh, like slab concrete is how they lay down some of their streets. And those cracks are known to just suck up tires. Uh, and he stuck his front wheel in there and down he went. And then, of course, we had a great chase being put on by Peter Sagan and Greg Van Avermaet. Uh, Van Avermaet, the gold medalist, Peter Sagan in the rainbow jersey. And Sagan was riding uh, close to the barriers, very close, in fact. And he caught his bars on a fan's jacket and ended up on the deck. So that ended, ended uh, Peter's chase. And once Sagan was out of the chase, uh, really, any any chance at catching Gilbert was pretty much over because Sagan was the guy driving that. And he was the man who was going to really make something happen there to, to catch Gilbert. And I think they would have, but unfortunately, um, uh, and there's been some criticism of Sagan for the way he rode, how close he was riding the, to the barriers. Fabian Conchalara, for one, said... He didn't think it was a very smart idea to be riding that close. And, you know, there's I think there's some merit to that because in Flanders you have wind and you start riding close to stationary objects that can be blown around, banners, what have you, you know, anything could happen. Yeah, a fan's jacket is unfortunate. Fans should not be hanging, you know, clothing. They shouldn't have their laundry hung out to dry over the over the fences, over the barriers. Um, but, you know, that, that kind of stuff can happen when you ride close to other objects and so Sagan was out but there he was Philippe Gilbert you know I love that look of the Belgian national champion crossing the finish line at the Ronde van Vlaanderen the the biggest race in Belgium uh his hands in the air we haven't seen that uh for a number of years since Stein de Volder did it he won the Ronde in the uh the national champions jersey uh, in a similar style, in fact, broke away, went on his own, uh, had Boonin for a teammate, um, and d- did almost an identical thing, and, and had that jersey on, and it was a 
quite a look. So congrats to Philippe Gilbert for winning uh, the Tour of Flanders in style. And then on the ladies' side, did you did you catch who won the women's race? Here's a little clue, in fact. That is our national anthem, of course, and it is being played for Corinne Rivera, an American. This is this is the song, folks. This is her podium appearance. She won the Women's Tour of Flanders, the first American to win the Women's Tour of Flanders. She writes for Sunweb. Uh, she beat about 20 other ladies in a sprint to the line. She is known as a sprinter. Uh, rides out of Orange County, California. So in my neck of the woods. Probably knows a lot of our roads around here. And Corinne Rivera, not not a big woman by any stretch, but certainly powerful and known as a sprinter. And she laid it down at the end. So the first woman ever to win, the first American woman to ever win the Tour of Flanders is Corinne Rivera. Congratulations to her. All right, Corinne Rivera. Excellent job. Um, another topic regarding the Tour of Flanders and racing in Belgium. I found this article and this survey, actually what it was, very, very interesting. And it regards charging spectators at professional bike races. Now, we all know that professional bike racing is struggles economically. It's it's a hard go, uh, and they get by on basically sponsorship dollars. That's all they really have. There's no big TV deal. Um, there's nothing really else to float their boat. So some of these organizers are starting to look around, and they're looking at all those people standing on the side of the road as a potential source of income. This was the survey that was done by Het Newsbolt. It said that half of Belgium's major race organizers believe that charging spectators will eventually happen. The newspaper surveyed 22 organizers, including those that put on the Tour of Flanders and Gent Webelkem. What once seemed unthinkable... Several of the organizers now believe may become a normal way of funding races, and that would be charging spectators to watch races, races that are currently free. You can basically show up in Belgium or any country, and unless it's a VIP area, you know, or some small roped-off area, you just go find your section of road or your berg or your climb and stand there and watch some of the greatest athletes on the planet. The greatest cyclist, no doubt, uh, race on by, no charge. You have your little barbecue set up, your friends, your beers, what have you. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a great spirit. It's one of the great attractions of the sport. Now, fortunately for fans, by the way, organizers of the Tour of Flanders are against, they say they're against charging spectators. But it's the smaller race organizers who are really struggling who say, look, this is inevitable. This is going to happen. We need to charge. We need to find a new funding source to keep these races going. Again, they, they surveyed about 22 organizers. You have a lot of races in, in Belgium. You know, it's a cycling hotbed, but 
It doesn't mean it's a profit center. I mean, these these races want these organizers want to keep their races going, and they're looking for ways to do that. Now, I don't know, hypothetically. Let's think about this. If if organizers start charging for races, okay. Let me ask you: Would you pay to stand on the Koppenberg and watch the entire field come by once? Would that be worth anything to you? To have a guaranteed spot? Maybe. You get to see them once. Okay. What if I said, okay, you're going to pay 20 bucks. I'll guarantee you a spot on the Koppenberg or the Petterberg or wherever. And I'll make sure that the Peloton makes two passes. Okay, that sounds a little better, huh? Maybe I throw a beer in there too. Okay. Even better. You see what's going on here, though. If if we start charging, the the thing about the sport is it only passes you once, right? I mean, the action doesn't go back and forth in front of you like at a stadium, like in an arena, or even in tennis, where you can you know obviously watch the volley, the returns, the serve go back and forth. You don't have to move. The action is right there in front of you. Or even in golf, the action moves in golf, but you can walk along because they're not, golfers don't tend to ride at 30 miles an hour to their next shot. <laughs> they're not in that much of a hurry. Cycling, although, I mean, I've heard that in Flanders, and I know it at Flanders, if you're a savvy spectator, you can jump around and you can see the race more than once. You have to move, though, and you have to move quickly, and you probably have to have a car to do that. But again, if you were guaranteed that you wouldn't have to, A, move, and B, that the race would come by twice, maybe three times, you don't have to move. Is that worth something to you? And if that was done, what does that do to the integrity of the race? Is it still Is it still the Tour of Flanders? It's, is it still... Um, Ghent Welvegem or any of these races do they do they lose anything are we do, are we in danger of turning what is largely point to point racing into more circuit style racing this has kind of happened in mountain biking I mean mountain biking they used to race much lo- uh, larger courses uh, but to make things more fan friendly they don't charge there not that I know of <laughs> But to make things more fan-friendly, uh, mountain biking has shortened their courses. So the athletes come by more often and fans get a chance to see them. It's what makes cyclocross so great. I mean, when, when Lance was in his heyday and not yet an admitted doper and people were, you know, doing all they could to watch him ride his bike, uh, I got the best opportunity ever to watch the man in action. And that was at a cyclocross race. It was one of our local races. And he came by me about a dozen times. I gave him splits. I was yelling out splits to the man. He was asking me for them at one point. Uh, so, I mean, that's the beauty of cyclocross. But it's also, cyclocross is a, is a unique event in that way. Road cycling, road racing, I think in a traditional sense, and certainly Europe and Belgium would would embody tradition if, if any country or if any area did, has been largely a, a point-to-point 
uh, activity and makes it very difficult to see the action more than once. Again, unless we start charging spectators and we start guaranteeing those spectators that they're going to see the action more than once. Again, I'm kind of jumping ahead. I'm hypothesizing here. I don't know how this would ever play out if, you know, again, if there was, if there were tickets being sold and how they'd set up grandstands and how you handle fans from that forward. But um, it is something that a, a large number of organizers believe not just they want to happen or they think is, they say it will happen. It will happen for the good of the sport or the bad of the sport, depending on depending on how you look at that. Again, though, congrats to Philippe Jobert and Corinne Rivera, the champions this year of the Tour of Flanders. Uh, my favorite race. I love it. I hope to get there someday to watch it in person. It is a beautiful event. Okay. That will wrap up uh, segment one for the pace line. Again, this week we are without Patrick Brady, who is on assignment in Japan, and Fatty, who is just out. I don't know where he is. But um, when we come back, we will actually hear from Patrick. He has an interview for us. Uh, it will be on Dirty Kanza, and I think you're really going to like this one. That's next on the pace line. We've been talking about Health IQ and how they are helping people to source better rates on life insurance. Recently, they updated their site with new insurers and the ability to serve more people. They've got special rates for cyclists, of course, and runners and triathletes, but also vegans and other health conscious people now. We've mentioned they have quizzes, and these aren't just for fun. If you score elite on a quiz for a specific lifestyle, that can earn you a further discount on your life insurance. They've also replaced BMI with waist-to-hip ratio, which is a far better predictor of cardiovascular disease when it comes to athletes. Additionally, they replaced the LDL-to-HDL ratio with triglyceride-to-HDL ratio for people on low-carb or paleo diets because that's a better predictor of cholesterol health. Amazingly, they will not take into account one incidence in a family history if you are otherwise healthy. It's like a get-out-of-jail card. In other words, if one person in your family has had cancer or diabetes, they won't ding you for it. Finally, they can also get better rates for those with runner's heart or hypertension. Check them out at healthiq.com paceline. The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. Michael Houghton here. I am without my two others in this effort. That would be Patrick Brady and Fatty, Eldon Fatty Nelson. Patrick is on assignment in Japan working on a travel piece for Bicycling Magazine. I have no clue where Fatty is. I've uh, sent out uh, all... I sent up smoke signals. I've sent out flares. I'm just trying anything. If you've seen Fatty, 
have him have him get a hold of me. I'd really like to know where he is at this point. But the show must go on, and that's why we continue here on the Pace Line. Again, we thank uh, thank you for uh, joining us, finding us. Uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music. Did I mention the stuff at the beginning of the show? I don't. We usually do. It's iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music. Uh, we're on TuneIn Radio too. That's uh, a good place to find us. And always, as always, you can go to redkiteprayer.com and stream the show from there. And then you get the show notes. And you can comment. You can see a little picture. Um, and you can rummage around other parts of Red Kite Prayer. So I think that's the best place to go catch an episode of the Pace Line. But of course, uh, you know, if you're into iTunes, obviously, subscribe, rate us there. That works. I think I'm supposed to do this portion, this little plug at the beginning of the show, but I, I messed it all up. And that's why that's why we like Fatty to to host the show as much as possible. He gets, he keeps it straight. Fatty, you got to get back here. Keep the show in line. Okay. Uh, as you probably heard uh, Patrick, myself, Fatty even talk about a lot, we, the three of us, have become really interested and really attracted to gravel events. I know some people don't like that term. How about adventure riding, adventure races? They come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, Patrick loves the Grasshopper Adventure Series, as do I. I did Redland Stradarosa a couple weeks ago. I've done Rock Cobbler this year so far. Um, we really, really like these events. But there is one event that rises above them all in this land. And it is in the middle of the country. And it is torturous and hard and ridiculously long. And it is dirty Kansas. And our man, Patrick Brady, has decided, A, to take this race on, and B, to talk to the two people who put the race on every year. Patrick. This year, I'm going to ride Dirty Kansas off in Emporia, Kansas. I'm going to do the 100-mile version and try to get back early enough so that I can cover those who are finishing the 200-mile edition. I wanted to talk to Jim Cummins and Leland Danes, uh, who run the event, and find out more about the the origins of the event, just how difficult it is, um, you know, the nature of what crushes people and how remote this is. So here's here we are with uh, the first of a two-part interview with Jim Cummins and Leland Danes. I'm with Jim Cummins and Leland Danes, uh, who are the director and director of operations for uh, Dirty Kanza. Um, well, did I get your, did I get your title right there, Jim? Uh, close enough. Uh, <laughs> officially I'm executive director, but, uh, you can call me anything. Uh, boss. How's that? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that works, I guess. Okay. <laughs> Very cool. Well, you know, guys, I wanted to have you all on the show. I mean, in part because I'm excited to be visiting you for the first time. Uh, but also, you know, your event has risen so much in terms of popularity, um, and yet, you know, a lot of the coverage out there has been pretty straightforward race coverage. So I wanted to get a little bit more background on, you know, how the event came to be um, and, you know, what your vision was. So let's see. Let's start with a couple basics. How many years are you going now? Uh, this will be our 12th year. Uh, we're calling it uh, the Dirty Dozen. Wow, very cool. Okay, and so when you when you first started it, did you have both the 200 and the 100? 
Uh, no. When we first started it, uh, it was a one distance only. It was just a 200-mile event, and it wasn't much more than just a group ride. We were just throwing together an event, uh, hoping a few people would show up and come ride with us. <laughs> I mean, how many people were there at the first one? Uh, we had 34 riders in 2006. Wow. Good grief. And of those 34 who started out, how many finished? Um, I want to say 19, something like that. Wow. Okay. So uh, a pretty high attrition rate, but then it sounds like you may have wanted something that really threw everything at folks. Uh, yeah. I mean, we wanted it, we wanted it to be achievable, uh, but also to be a, a true challenge. So there's kind of that balancing act on, you know, just how hard do you make it and and uh, how easy do you make it. But uh, we certainly wanted people to feel like uh, when they got done that they had accomplished something worth bragging about. <laughs> that seems safe to say you achieved. Um, wow. <laughs> um, so now, <clears throat> at what point for you guys, I mean, I don't think it was really on my radar until, I don't know, 2011 maybe, 2012, somewhere in there. You know, at what point did you feel like you'd turned the corner in terms of, oh, this thing's really popular now. We've got something here. And what do you think contributed to that? Uh, yeah, well, it was probably, uh, to answer the first part of your question, it was around 2010. Um, that's when we hit uh, the 500 rider mark. And uh, in speaking with other uh, event promoters, uh, uh, that was kind of what I was told that, you know, Below 500 people, you're you're just picks and grins. But uh, once you reach that 500 rider number, uh, it becomes a full time job, <laughs> and so that's when things got real. Uh huh. Wow. And let's see. This year, you're anticipating how many entrants? Uh, we're going to have in the neighborhood of 2,300 riders, but and that's between our four distances. We. We now offer a 200-mile option, a 100-mile, a 50-mile, and a 25-mile option. Very cool. Okay. I didn't know about the 25. Yeah. No. Yeah, that's just what, 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 that's what we call our community fun ride. Uh, we'll have uh, a little over 1,000 riders in the 200-mile distance. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. And so back to that other question, you know, what was it? that, you know, what was it you did or what happened that really started to cause you to be something that captured the imaginations of riders? Well, um, you know, with a lot of things, I, I think uh, to some people it looks like we were an overnight sensation and, and actually nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, <laughs> you know, like we said, 2006, we were 34 riders and and uh, every year we grew, um, but every year that was a controlled growth. We set a field limit based on what we felt we were ready to, to manage. And, I mean, you know, we went from 36 to 50 to 75 to 100. Um, but um, so I think a lot of our growth was just uh, um, good word of mouth. Uh, you know, people came. They had a good time. They wanted to come back. And when they came back, they brought a buddy or two with them. Um, but 
I think there's a number of things that have uh, contributed to our growth and, and to our popularity. Um, one, uh, and, it, and it's the thing that, that we have that um, is very, very hard for anyone to duplicate, and that is the Flint Hills. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are indeed a magical place. Um, we don't. We feel that there's no better place to ride your bike, uh, particularly no better place to ride gravel. And um, the other thing that uh, really kind of took us by surprise a little bit, um, but one thing that we've really enjoyed and, and we value to this day is the way the city of Emporia has gotten behind this event um, and, the, and the way that um, the people of this town go, go out of their way to welcome our riders to town and, and uh, make them feel very special while they're here. You know, in, in reading about that, it has occurred to me that some of the appeal or, or some, what I, some of what I think is the beauty of the event reminds me a lot about my attraction to Ragbri and the way, you know, when, when Ragbri passes through a town, that whole town turns out. I mean, they get a lot out of it, but it's a really cool celebration of cycling, even just, you know, one of the pass-through towns. Uh, and it sounds like, yeah, the, that the town really embraces this in a way that most cycling events don't typically enjoy. Um, yeah, um, I, I think that really speaks to... Uh the Midwest mindset. Uh, uh, they're just, there's just good people out here. Um, and, uh, uh, it's just a good, a good place to be. Neat, neat, neat. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, that part I'm really looking forward to, and I'm glad I'll have a couple days there beyond just, you know, doing the event itself. So I'll get a chance to look around. Um, now, in in looking at you know the 100 which i'll be doing instead of the 200 you know talk to me a little bit about okay sure it's not not as much length what about the ratio of you know pavement to dirt how does that change when you go from the 200 to the 100 and maybe we should back up and talk about how much of the 200 is actually on unpaved surfaces well, uh, I can speak to that a little bit. Uh, the percentage isn't going to change hardly at all um, because the 200-mile distance only has a few more miles of pavement, but that's because they visit uh, an extra town that the 100-mile does not. And so really the only pavement you're going to see is leaving, um, entering or leaving a town, whether it be the start-finish in Emporia or one of the checkpoint towns out on course. Other than that, it is um, virtually outside of the city limits. It's virtually 100% gravel. Wow. Wow. Incredible. Boy. And, you know, I hear a lot about these hills, you know, for folks who haven't had a chance to visit like me, uh, you know, how long are these hills? How steep do they get? I hear they're endless. So that part I can picture. (laughs) Well, I think that's a good description, though, because obviously Kansas is not a mountainous state, but it's also not the flat Kansas of television that you see in the Wizard of Oz. Um, right. So, yeah, there are, in fact, you can anticipate nearly 6,000 feet of climbing per 100 miles in the GK 200-mile course. So that's a substantial amount of climbing. Oh, my gosh. So the longest climb or the longest grade maybe only be a mile or two at the most, but mm-hmm. um, you're more times than not, you're either going up or you're going down. You're rarely just going on flat level ground so um, it's pretty undulating and it's pretty ongoing 
That's really we, we oftentimes describe it as uh, you don't you don't get knocked out by a roundhouse a punch. Uh, it's a technical knockout from just repeated blows. So there's a whole lot of 75 and 100 foot climbs, uh, but they just continually hit you. And when those climbs are coupled with a 20 to 25 mile an hour plus, and it could be even more than that, but a wind, a headwind, boy, it feels a whole lot worse than the climb itself. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that part just amazes me, you know, that you would have that much wind combined with hills like that. Um, you know, I, I can say I don't think I've ever I've ever faced anything like that. And if I have, you know, the, yeah, the hilliest courses I did, you know, where it was rolling hills constantly, the, the wind wasn't that bad. And I think about the windiest races I ever did, and they were flat. And neither of those, you know, were mostly on unpaved surface. So, I mean, this is really something you're talking about here. I... <laughs> I'm I'm in for it. So Jim, now I know Maxis has recently signed on as a big tire sponsor for you guys. Um, so obviously, you know it's good for you if people show up riding Maxis tires. I don't suppose you're actually going to recommend one brand over another, but there are going to be a lot of questions, technically speaking, about you know what sort of pressures do you encourage people to consider? What sort of tire widths are typically you know, where people are going? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. In fact, uh, tires is uh, by far and away the number one question that we, that we receive uh, from riders. Um, it's on everybody's mind. Um, and, uh, and it's a very important part of uh, having a successful Dirty Cans experience. Um, the, the thing that I usually tell people um, is the number one characteristic you should look for in, in a tire selection is that uh, your, your tires ought to be new. <laughs> Don't go up to dirty cans <laughs> with old worn out tires, uh, irregardless of what size and what width you're running. Uh, they should be new or, or in very good condition. Um, uh, you know, as far as width, uh, it's all over the place. Uh, people have been very successful at Dirty Kansas on uh, 29er hardtails running two-inch wide tires. Uh, we've had people show up on uh, 28C road tires. Uh, uh, although it can be done that way, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't recommend that. Um, me personally, I feel that the sweet spot is uh, around a 40 to 42C. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the other thing is we're very, very strong proponents of tubeless. Um, uh, you know, you'll, you'll hear all these uh, stories and tall tales uh, about the number of flats that people experience during Dirty Kansas. Sure. Um, most of those are pinch flats. Um, uh, you, you certainly will cut a tire out here. You, you can cut a tire out here. I mean, these are called the Flint Hills. Mm-hmm. and uh, flint is what was used by the Native Americans for all the cutting tools, and it will certainly slice through a tire. Um, but uh, as long as you're picking good lines and uh, your tires are in good condition and you have tires that have some element of cut protection to them, uh, you shouldn't have an exorbitant amount of cuts. Uh, it is possible, but most flats are going to be a result of pinch flatting. And so if you're running tubeless, you eliminate that. Yeah, yeah, wow. 
Uh, and why is it that pinch flats are are so prevalent? I mean, is it just that you suddenly well, all, get these chunks you know, of rock? Well, all these uh, rolling hills that we were talking mm -hmm. about earlier, um, uh, at the bottom of a lot of these hills, uh, you envision a roller coaster uh, constantly down and up and down and up. And at the, at the bottom, at the valley of all these, oftentimes uh, there will have been water running across the road. And uh, uh, when that has happened, the water washes away the, the top layer and, and leaves um, larger ex rocks exposed. And uh, flint rocks oftentimes have a very sharp edge to them. Gotcha. And so happens, you know, you'll, you'll uh, come to a large uh, descent. And if you look about 100 yards, 50 to 100 yards past the bottom of that descent, you'll usually see riders stop <laughs> along the side of the road. Who wants to slow down when they're bombing down the downhill facing another uphill climb? Yeah. But, uh, they'll, be, they'll be stopped there uh, repairing a flat tire because they pinch flatted at the bottom. Gotcha. I mean, it makes perfect sense. You know, you want to carry all the momentum you can, you know, why back off now? Uh, it reminds me of so many scenes that I've witnessed um, in the grasshoppers here in Sonoma County, where you get through some little technical challenge, you know, some, some, you know, little rivulet cut in, uh, into a, uh, one of the gravel roads. And then, yeah, 50 yards on, there are four guys pulled over fixing flats. And part two of Patrick's interview with the Kansas Brain Trust should appear in our next show. And we look forward to hearing that and about Patrick's run up. The Dirty Cans of 2017. Good luck, Patrick, uh, with that. We will. We know you will need it. Uh, you know, a race like Kanza presents a huge nutrition puzzle. For many riders, it's a 12-plus-hour day. In fact, day can turn into night while you're out there in the uh, hills around Emporia, Kansas. And that's a lot of drinking and a lot of eating on the bike. You need that energy to be delivered to your working muscles, your brain, and you need to be able to keep it down. You know, I'm a big fan of um, Stacey Sims. Uh, I've followed her. I've uh, communicated with her a bunch on nutrition. I believe a lot of what she has to say, and a lot of what she has to say is not very nice about gel shots. One of all of us, we love gel shots, right? It's one of our go-to foods, but she, in general has an issue with most gel shots because of how of an imbalance that they create as far as your hydration is concerned. It's, in her mind, too much sugar and the wrong kinds of sugars all at once in your gut. And her theory is it pulls water out of your blood and rushes it to your digestive system so it can deal with that glob you've just dumped down your stomach. Now, that said, I've asked Stacy before... What is acceptable? I mean, there are times when you need quick energy, and she agrees. And she agrees at those times, generally near the end of, ends of races, but at any time, if you're going to use quick energy, the best, and the one that's going to cause you the least disruption from a hydration standpoint, and remember the two go hand in hand here. I mean, food and energy and what you put in your stomach and how well your muscles are being hydrated and how much water is in your blood, they go hand in hand. 
And she believes that if you're going to put something that's quick burning in your system, there's really nothing better than glucose. Yes, glucose. The same stuff a diabetic would use if they've got a blood sugar imbalance and they're low on blood sugar. They take glucose tabs. Same idea, glucose. Stacy says glucose is a fine go-to energy source, especially when you need something quick, especially near the end of an event. So glucose seems to be a go-to. And in fact, there's a company out there called Glucose. Uh, it's an energy food company. And they've built their their entire product line, or most of it. They, they have a whey protein product too, around using glucose as an energy source. And I had a chance to talk to the national account manager with glucose, Peter Wolf. Now, folks, this, this interview goes back a little bit. It goes back to Interbike. That's when I met him. I met him at the outdoor demo, in fact. And, uh, but uh, I, I've been wanting to play this one and been just looking for the right opportunity to do it. And I think now is, is the right opportunity because this is a good time to start thinking about what's going to be my energy source. What, what are going to, how am I going to feed myself during my big events this year? And if you're starting to think about changing anything, you want to do that now during training and not on race day, of course. I spoke with Peter Wolf, who is the National Account Manager with Glucose, about their products and about nutrition. Peter, tell me about Glucose. First of all, the spelling. G-L-U-K-O-S. Why is it spelled that way? Just well, for marketing reasons? Or? Yeah, it's just a play off of the uh, carbohydrate glucose. So when people, so they really know what they're getting when they try our product. Yeah. And it is glucose, and that is the primary ingredient. Why did you folks go with glucose? Yeah, it is the only ingredient with regards to carbohydrate that we use versus sucrose or fructose. Glucose is what our bodies use naturally uh, for energy replacement. Everything we eat digests down and converts to glucose, and then your body can assimilate it. And what's great about our product, as soon as you put it in your mouth, your body actually starts assimilation through the cell wall. So it has a very quick upload, and we mix that with potassium and sodium for electrolytes, and it's great. It's all natural, nothing artificial, uh, no preservatives, no stimulants. Yeah. And the other reason people might recognize glucose is if they know somebody who's a diabetic, they probably heard of that person taking glucose. Exactly. There's a reason why diabetics utilize glucose is because when they go hypo, they need uh, immediately, they need energy replacement right away. Every paramedic drives around with a generic glucose gel, and so they utilize glucose uh, as a very efficient form of getting themselves out of a hypo situation. And not too dissimilarly, we use glucose for quick energy replacement. So anybody who needs quick energy replacement can utilize glucose safely. It's great for kids, it's great for athletes, uh, whether you're a top endurance athlete all the way down to uh, you know, a kid playing soccer, it's all safe. Yeah. For the athlete, how do you suggest that they use the product? Yeah, I, I think the, the most efficient way is to make sure that you're fueled up. So starting out utilizing one of our delivery vehicles, which is gummies or tablets or gels or the drink. You just want to make sure you fuel up and then typically every, depending on how hot it is or how much energy you're expending, it could be every 20 to 30 minutes you're utilizing something else, adding another gel, taking a few more gummies and so that's typically what we see. Yeah. If an athlete says, I want to mix in um, some, some other whole foods in my diet or in my fueling, yeah. uh, does that jive with what glucose is delivered? 
Yeah, you know, the thing is, is that uh, typically uh, adding some other whole food is, is fine. Um, when you're talking about energy replacement and hydration, our products are just super efficient for that process. Um, anytime you add whole foods, you have to digest it in order for it to convert into um, an energy source. And so. again, that's why you stayed away from fructose and sucrose. I mean, you could have made the cocktail, but... You didn't because? Because uh, sucrose and fructose both have to be digested. That takes time and it takes energy. They eventually break down to glucose, which your body then can use for energy replacement. And then the other thing that happens, and this is just what science tells us and shows us, is that there's a couple of bad byproducts that come out of the digestion of sucrose and fructose. And one of them is lactic acid, and the other one is triglycerides. And as an athlete or somebody that's uh, ingesting uh, a nutrition product, you would never purposely put that into your body, lactic acid or triglycerides. There's a pretty significant movement going on now to use fat as fuel. In fact, there's a whole thinking about diet and exercise of the low-carb, high-fat yep. athlete, the ketogenic, ketogenic athlete. Yep. What would be your counter to that type of diet or that approach? Well, you know, I mean, that's 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 one approach, uh, and and you know, the science is there. It's it's not a bad science, but I would tell you that the the, the purest science for energy replacement. There's a reason why every hospital uh, uses IVs for uh, when somebody needs to be hydrated or for energy replacement. And what's in an IV is glucose, potassium and sodium, and water. And that's exactly what we use in all of our products. It's glucose, potassium and sodium, and, and then whatever the natural flavor is. So our own orange gummies have orange oil. Our lemon gummies have lemon oil. So we just go purely based on uh, the science that's out there and proven. Um, now, you folks do have a somewhat new product, and it does have protein, but yep. it's not intended for during an event, right? Right. Well, protein is typically for uh, uh, recovery, and, and the beautiful thing about glucose is that it's a driver of protein molecules. So we actually have a patent pending on, our, on glucose with uh, protein, and what's great about it is that um, for recovery purposes, you want to make sure that you build your body tissue up very quick after you work out. And there's nothing more efficient than glucose rather than sugar or rather than fructose in combination with protein than glucose with protein. So it's super efficient for recovery and, and uh, replacement. Now, as far as finding your product, do I find it in, the, it sounds like I could find this in the drugstore or at my bike shop. Yeah, so we're, our distribution is uh, is growing. Um, last year we were at about 1,000 doors, and this year we'll end up between uh, nine and 11,000 doors. Uh, we're in REI, we're in Sprouts, uh, CVS is bringing us in, we're in uh, Rite Aid. And, and what's interesting about Rite Aid and CVS is they, they look at our product both in two dual purposes for nutrition, and energy replacement, and also on the 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 uh, uh, for the diabetic side. So it's uh, it's a great tasting product. That's the other thing that we haven't really talked about is how great our products taste. There's no weird taste or artificial flavors or you know. And typically, when you taste something that has artificial, it does it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And none of our products do that. Yeah, and that's one of the things you folks focused on is uh, taste fatigue and gut fatigue, yeah. which uh, tends to attack. Most you and I are lucky. Both of right. us can eat rocks and probably get by. Right. But we know that most athletes can't do that. Right. I mean, the one thing that we see a lot of, uh, whether it's in the endurance category or you know, really 
anybody that's that's extending a lot of energy is when they utilize something that has fructose in it they get GI issues and you just don't get that with glucose glucose burns super clean it's processed super efficiently and so you just don't get that gut issue uh, that you do with some other products All right. Peter yeah enjoy the show hey, thank you thanks for being on the baseline appreciate us. the opportunity okay. again that was Peter Wolf a national account manager with glucose we'll have a link to their website on our website, redkiteprayer.com. Again, uh, if you're thinking about changing your nutrition, let's do it now while we're in training uh, before uh, we hit race day. Let's get all that stuff straightened out uh, before we we head for the start line. Know exactly what you're putting in your pocket, what you're putting in your gut, and how it's going to react with you when you go out hard. And glucose, I've tried some of the products, really good stuff, clean um, and very quick energy. If you need something fast, it'll be there in short time for you. Okay, let's move on to our paceline picks or pick because it's just me, folks. But I do have a pick uh, for you. I, I love this segment. I love what we come up with. It's always a surprise to hear what the guys have. And I like to kind of root something out once in a while that's uh, a little lighter, um, a little more on the hmm side, you know, one of those things. So, And I think this fits the I don't know if it's like, hmm, but it, it was an interesting stab at doing something about protected bike lanes. We all enjoyed uh, Patrick's interview with Eric Bruins. Um, he's formerly with the LA County Bike Coalition and now a consultant for cities looking to expand bike opportunities. You should check out the Eric Bruins interview uh, Patrick did a few episodes ago. Eric is a rising star in the bike advocacy community. Uh, he's also a hell of a writer. Writer, I should say. Bicycle writer, not writer. Although he could probably write, but writer in his own right. And of course, Patrick and and Eric talked a lot about uh, bike lanes and what it takes to lay down lanes and what it takes to get the community moving forward in this area. But I wonder if Eric would approve of my Paceline pick because it does have to do with something near and dear to his heart. And that would be protected bike lanes. I mean, it's one thing to to stripe a street and lay down some stencils and call it a day. Yeah, you've got a lane, but there's no buffer between your bike and a texting teen at the wheel of daddy's SUV, a.k.a. a suburban tank. What can make a difference, though, is adding a barrier, some additional space, a curb, parking spaces that would... Put the cars, the moving cars, and the bikes, keep them separated somehow. That is what we call a protected bike lane. And studies have determined that ridership goes up when cyclists have access to protected lanes. Well, someone in Kansas had the wise idea that the city of Wichita, while growing its bicycle infrastructure, was not going all the way by building protected bike lanes. So this person, maybe a plumber, lined a heavily used bike lane with hundreds of toilet plungers. Yeah, the plungers created an instant barrier and remained standing as cars whizzed by them. I mean, consider the plunger. Big rubber base, suction power. Installing a few dozen of those things just takes a few minutes, and if a car gets too close to the bike lane, bam, handle smacks the fender. The plunger perpetrator went the extra mile, too, here by dressing up his toilet tools 
with uh, reflective tape. So there were just dozens of these things, plungers lining a bike lane in Wichita, Kansas. And of course, uh, the puns have been flying on Twitter and Facebook over this. Uh, one said, is this bike lane in the toilet? Or another one went, or did the activist take the plunge for good reason? Ouch. I'll leave it to social media for the bad puns. So that is my pace line pick. <laughs> toilet plungers. And that is the pace line. For this edition, at least. So sorry we missed uh, Patrick Brady today, but uh, hoping to get him back soon. Again, Patrick is uh, in Japan working on a travel piece for Bicycling Magazine. And we are still searching for Eldon Fatty Nelson. An APB has been put out. Uh, We're just basically running a search party. The Paceline search party is in action looking for Fatty. But I expect he will return and he will have an excellent story as to why he is not here uh, for this show. The Pace Line can be found, of course, on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Music, TuneIn Radio. You can also find it on the pages of redkiteprayer.com. You can uh, subscribe to us, uh, by the way, at iTunes. You can rate us at iTunes. And, of course, at Red Kite Prayer, you can leave a comment and check out some show notes and some links. We have all that there regarding this show or any previous shows. Go back and do a little binge listening for us. And then tell all your friends, because we'd really appreciate it. Okay. Uh, again, we'll have part two of uh, Patrick's Dirty Kanza interview in our next show. Until then, for Patrick and Fatty, I'm Michael Houghton. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line. Ronde van Vlaanderen bij de Daals.